I'm Aaron Tomlinson, and thank you for joining me today for uh, this this Sunday morning live video. I got some good response uh, last week to the one I did, and I'm going to try to start doing this regularly again. And uh, today, I want to talk about I want to talk about our philosophy of life. And again, this just kind of goes back to me doing some processing, um, kind of thinking out loud, kind of stuff, because I'm just in a season of my life when I am uh, just recontemplating, going back and thinking over uh, what my own personal philosophy of life is. We all have a philosophy of life. We all have a way that we live, and we have a reason why we live the way that we live. And I think it is important because a lot of people don't think about this. They don't think about what is their philosophy of life. And then maybe even more importantly, they don't think about where does their philosophy of life come from? How do they know what they know? I think one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves or ask anybody really is, how do you know what you know or why do you do what you do? What are the reasons that you make the life choices that you make? And so the truth is that we all have a philosophy. We all have reasons why we make the choices that we make. We all have reasons why we do the things that we do. But very few people really take the time in our culture and our society to sit back and really examine what is their philosophy of life? Where did their philosophy of life come from? Is it working for them? Do they need to make updates or changes to that philosophy of life? And so I think for a lot of us, it's just beneficial if at various different seasons and times in our life, if we think about those things, and we think about why do we do what we do? What is it that we believe? What are our core values? What's important to us? And are we living consistently and congruently in line with that philosophy? <clears throat> now, one of the things that religion does for people, and one of the things that religion did for me for a long time, is it does provide us with a philosophy. It provides us with ideas and concepts of reality and the way in which we choose to live our lives. So, for example, the Christian philosophy of life goes something like this. Um, there was a creator God who created us in the beginning in his image and likeness, and we fell. Something happened with humanity, and we fell. Of course, the Bible says that that happened with uh Two naked vegans in a garden who talked to a snake. Um, so Adam and Eve fell from paradise and everyone who is born of them is born in a fallen state or born in a fallen condition and therefore needed redemption. And so God sent his son or came as himself in the person of Jesus in order to redeem us from the fall, in order to set us free from sin and the bondage of the devil. There's a devil out there in that philosophy that is trying to deceive us, that's trying to pull us off the off the path and off the course. And then ultimately, the Redeemer was Jesus, person named Jesus, who died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and now this is the important part. He's uh, seated cosmically in the invisible heavens where he's ruling as Lord. And then the direction, the flow of time and the flow of redemption is working towards the summing up of all things 
in Christ, or as it says in Philippians, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you take that philosophy seriously, then everything in your life, including your own submission to the Lordship of Jesus, is is working towards this obedience and this submission and this exaltation of the Lordship of Christ. So everything that we do um, from the way that we talk, the way that we act, who we marry, um, who we vote for as a candidate and support as a candidate, uh, all of that is somehow being governed by those philosophical frames. Now, there is no empirical objective evidence for any of that stuff. Um, you can't prove any of it objectively or empirically using scientific method or even using observation. And so, in, in fact, you're, you're, the, 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 the brand of Christianity that I was part of and came out of, you were taught to deny your own experiences in favor of this philosophy that was being preached to you from the pulpit or given to you from your own personal Bible study and, and things like that. And so people within the Christian spectrum have varying degrees of commitment to that philosophy of life. It may just govern a few things in their lives. Uh, maybe they follow the Ten Commandments. They go to church on Sundays. They volunteer. Uh, and, and they're just kind of generally a good person. But they, they, they stay in that flow of the, the Christian mindset and the Christian philosophy. So that's one example of having a philosophy of life. And I followed that philosophy of of life for many years. And one of the things that's appealing and one of the things that's attractive about it is that you don't have to do a lot of thinking because your thinking's done for you. You're told what to do. You're told what to say. You're told who to believe and what to believe and how to act and all those things. And most of that comes to us from the people who were discipling us, the people that we were listening to, the preachers that we were listening to, and the uh, leadership that we were following perhaps in our own local church or nowadays uh, our favorite podcast preacher or YouTube preacher or television preacher, whatever the case may be, right? And so, number one, it's simple, meaning you don't have to think through this stuff. It's already been thought through for you. And number two, uh, and this is probably maybe what was really attractive about it, is there's no self, uh, there, how do I say this? Um, I don't have to depend on myself to figure things out. Uh, it's already established for me. It, uh, in fact, renunciation of self, if you really get into the Christian philosophy of life, you really take what Jesus said in the gospel seriously or what Paul said in his writings, or you just take the New Testament seriously, then renunciation of self is key. Jesus said, you know, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, which in the original language meant you disown yourself, you take up your cross, you follow me. Another place in the gospel, he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Uh, nevertheless, I live yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And so it really is this, the foundation of it is a, it's, it's very communal in the sense that I'm renouncing my individualism. 
I'm renouncing my own dependence upon myself in order that I can conform into the community. And the level and the degree to which I conform to the communal ideology of Christianity is the degree to which then I can measure myself whether or not I'm a quote-unquote good Christian or a real Christian. And if I don't follow those tenets and principles, uh, then I'm considered a hypocrite. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, that's how that, that's how that rolls and that's how that goes. But let's talk about this, this idea of renunciation of self and is it really possible? My friend Ben Urban said something Friday night on, he was, uh, on at the end of our, uh, podcast that I do with Derek Day of Freeology Friday and he said something that really, um, Ben, I'm probably not going to quote you right, so if you're in the comments, you can you can put it. But he said something I've really been chewing on. He, he said that, you know, Christianity is religion. And, and Ben went to seminary. Ben has his master's degree in seminary. So this isn't somebody that's just, you know, uh, popping off. <laughs> this is somebody who really studied and has a has a, a, a master's degree, a higher level education in Christian philosophy. And... Um, and he said there is no salvation in Christianity of the individual. The individual saves God. God doesn't save the individual. The individual saves God in that the individual renounces their own individuality in order to be conformed to this image of Christ so that the image of Christ can be preserved, so that this idea of God can be saved. So that in a very real way, and I think this is so powerful, and I really want to hit on this, and I may be taking this in a direction that Ben didn't intentionally mean it. I'll let him speak for himself in the comments if he wants to. But this is what I took from it was was we have this concept of God that is an idea. At the end of the day, it's an idea. And that's why there's 30,000-some different denominations in the Christian church, because there's that many different ideas about what this God is like. Just in my own personal life, you know, in my 20, 30 year journey, whatever it was, uh, closer to 20, 25 year journey, uh, adhering, uh, devoutly to, uh, Christian, Christian thought and Christian philosophy and trying to know God, trying to know Jesus Christ. Um, there were many different versions of Jesus that I was given. Um, the initial version of Jesus was pretty, uh, disconnected, pretty just kind of out there and couldn't really experience him or couldn't really know him, whatever sort of the denominational Jesus, the Protestant Jesus who, uh, you know, a lot of Calvinism in that version and that brand of it. Well, I guess actually the first one I got was in Methodism, and that was sort of the social action Jesus, the social justice Jesus. And uh, then it kind of got into the Calvinistic Jesus who predestines some to heaven and predestines some to hell, and the vast majority of people are predestined to hell. I mean, think about how crappy a philosophy that is. Uh, and yet we would pray, but yet everything was under his control and under his sovereignty and predetermined and predestined and pre-thought out. So I don't know how prayer worked in a situation like that. And then I got involved in the vineyard movement. And the vineyard movement was the intimate Jesus, the, the inner healing Jesus, the Jesus that was going to come and heal the brokenhearted and, and, um, 
loved, you know, those those old vineyard worship songs and kind of the, the hippie Jesus at the time, if I could say that. You know, John Wimber, the founder of the movement, would show up in Bermuda shorts and or Hawaiian shirts and stuff. And that was really edgy at the time um, because everybody was still, you know, every pastor I'd ever seen was still wearing suits and stuff. I'm, I'm going back to the 80s and the 90s. And then there was the... uh Prosperity gospel Jesus that <laughs> got into for a while. This was a Jesus that wanted you to be wealthy, that wanted you to have abundant life, that wanted you to um, whatever. And, and then there's the Catholic Jesus, then the Greek Orthodox Jesus and or, or Eastern Orthodox Jesus. And then there's the Yeshua Jesus. There's the, 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 the Yeshua, the Jesus of the Jewish roots movement and all of that. And so all of these were different forms of who Jesus was and some of them were very inconsistent for example you had the in the in the 80s and 90s you had the explosion of the word of faith movement the prosperity gospel so you had the prosperity Jesus which was really probably an american form of Jesus who uh like I said, wanted you wealthy, wanted you healthy, all those various different things. If you had enough faith, you could attain those things. If you gave enough money, you could attain those things. That was that Jesus. But at the same time, you had the Jesus of David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, some of you won't know who he is, but he uh, was a very popular preacher in the 70s. They even made a movie about his life, a, a book called uh, The Cross and the Switchblade that had Eric Estrada in it and Pat Boone. And, and he had a vision of Jesus where Jesus came and said that, uh, the prosperity gospel was completely false and that this Jesus was very angry with America because they were embracing this prosperity gospel. And he wrote a book, David Wilkerson did, called The Vision, and it was all about the wrath of the lamb coming upon America. And so you, you just had versions of Christ that were completely diametrically uh, opposed. And at the end of the day, these were just men's ideas. These were just men's uh, visions and images of this Jesus. And whatever uh, system you came under, whatever philosophy about Jesus that you came under, the, the one common thing was you had to renunciate self. You had to renounce self so that you could preserve the image. You had to devote yourself to that person so that you could preserve the God. So God doesn't save you. Jesus doesn't save you in Christianity. In Christianity, you reject yourself. You sacrifice yourself to save the God. And that's why the cross and the crucifix is the emblem of all Christianity. And and now you have this sort of liberal, progressive, Christianity that I can't even quite figure out what it is. Sometimes they believe the Bible when it supports their version and image, cut out image of who Christ is, and then other times they don't believe it. Sometimes they're more Buddhist than they are Christian, but yet they're still allegiant to Jesus. A, A lot of them have embraced universalism, so it's this idea that you're saved whether you want it to be or not. You're saved whether you know it or not. And so that lets them off the hook. Uh, of, I guess, having to do evangelism or anything, but yet they still say that they have the, the inroad to Jesus because in the Christian world since the third or fourth century, Christ became God. So you can't know God outside of Christ. And so that rejects any other form of, uh, religion or the knowledge of God or whatever for, for Christ. And, um, that one's just really, seems very, very inconsistent and incongruent to me. 
It's almost like they're admitting we're making uh, God in our own image. (laughs) But it's still built on this principle of someone else giving us a philosophy and the renouncing of self. Now, let's talk about that for a minute, because what is salvation then? If, if, If I'm not really being saved, if I'm crucified with Christ, if I'm renouncing myself, if I'm losing my life in order to save it, is it really being saved? Is there really even a concept of salvation as we might understand it in, in, in the Bible or in the teachings of Jesus? And again, I just want to, I want to hit that again. It's, it's the other way around. It's not God saving us. It's us dying to save God. And I, I remember what I was to say now. I was kind of doing some filler there until I could get back to what I was meaning. So this new progressive form of Christianity says that God is love and God's love is best displayed as Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now, I want you to think about that. Crucifixion was a horrible death. It was a torturous death. It was a painful death. It was a sacrificial death. And so now you're mingling love and violence and sacrifice and pain into one image of the cross or one image of the crucifix. And then we're saying, this is what love is like. And so it's no wonder then that the Christian version that we're seeing arising today in American Christo-fascism is is very violent, uh, very dehumanizing, and those kinds of things. And so I... I, I you know, you know, I, I can't even embrace this idea of love from a Christian perspective anymore because we're injecting violence and mistreatment and self-sacrifice for others, which sounds really good, but uh, I don't know how that works out as a philosophy of life. So where where do we begin? Where do we begin in this process? So all that to say, Christianity, religion gives you a philosophy of life, but then... Other people have philosophies of life. Atheists have philosophy, have a philosophy of life that they're living by. Other people in other religions have a different philosophy of life that they're living by. Satanists certainly have a philosophy of life that they're living by that's completely different. Um, and then most people are just kind of like floating through life maybe, but that's still a philosophy. Like maybe your biggest concern is what you're going to eat for dinner, uh, what you're going to do this weekend, how your job is going. And uh, where you're going on vacation next summer. And you just do that cycle every day and you do that cycle every year. And that also is a philosophy of life that's just kind of going with the flow of, of whatever. Some people take their philosophy of life from the media. Uh, some people get it from Fox News or from uh, some other media outlet that's just pumping them full of information, shaping their views, shaping their ideologies, shaping their philosophies and telling them how they are going to live. But at the end of the day, here's the truth. I I want to talk about this. I want to come back to this idea of the subjective universe and the objective universe. The subjective universe and the objective universe. And let me define those two terms. How I'm using them. Let's start with the objective universe. The objective universe is the objects out there. It's whatever exists out there in the totality of reality. Not just what exists in my life. Not just what exists in my day-to-day existence not just what exists on this earth or in this planet or under the oceans, but also what's out in the stars and the galaxies and the universe and multiple dimensions, which mathematically they can model, that it would appear that there's more than just this three-dimensional reality. What What is dark matter? So my point is, is that we know a sliver. It's only possible in your lifetime to know a sliver of the objective universe. Um 
with any kind of certainty at all. So the objective universe is whatever's out there that's not you, right? Me, not me. Whatever's out there that's not me. And then the subjective universe is your individual perception, mind, consciousness, reality, experiences, and storehouse of experience. It's the totality of what we do know. And at the end of the day, everybody's subjective universe exists on a completely different plane. We interact, we intersect, we relate, but nobody shares my subjective reality or my subjective universe. Nobody shares your subjective reality or your subjective universe. In a very real sense, I guess you could say, you're all there is in your subjective reality and your subjective universe. So from that perspective, I want to make two points. We can know very, very little about the objective universe. We can know a ton about the subjective universe, our own consciousness, our own ideas, our own perceptions, our own storehouses of memories and experiences. Yet very few people take time to think about their subjective universe and how they're running it. Because in a very real sense, and this is going to offend some of my religious viewers, and they're going to think I'm totally off my rocker, but I'm going to use this language anyway. You are the God of that universe. You are the shaper of it. You are the steward of it. You are the Lord over it. You are the fullness of it. You're all there is to it. And yet, we have this ability as human beings in our consciousness to do a meta-analysis of that, to, to be self-reflective, to reflect back upon it. So in other words, I'm all there is in my subjective universe, but I have the ability to step back and investigate or search or get to know that subjective universe. And since that subjective universe is the totality of my experience it's all that there will ever be for me it's all that ever was ever is and ever will be (laughs) i mean i am the one who was who is and who is to come (laughs) but think about it i mean i'm I'm, I i get this might be offensive and even seem blasphemous to some of my viewers but think about it when it comes to your life you're you're the one In everything you know about reality, you're the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And so it just makes sense to me that it would be to our benefit to take time to explore this subjective reality, to explore this subjective universe, and to evaluate it. And to think about what is my philosophy on life? Where did I get my philosophy on life? How trustworthy is it? How secure is it? How stable is it? And maybe more important than anything, how is it working for me? Is it giving me the outcomes that are making me happy? Is it giving me the outcomes that I can enjoy? And I think more than any other time in history, we are at a place of the individual. We're at the place of the individual soul. Uh, one of the reasons that I ended up 
in Christianity is because back in the, you know, 70s and 80s, that's all I knew that there was. I didn't have access to the Internet. I didn't have access to Amazon or podcasts. Heck, I only had access to four channels for most of my formative years. You know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. Later on, we got Satellite Dish and had, you know, HBO and Showtime and Cinemax and whatever else we had. But again, those aren't really providing options. That's just entertainment, right? And so, you know, my my town didn't have a local library. I'm, I'm just trying to say that, like, with the advent of social media, the advent of the Internet, uh, having immediate access to information in the information age, then we are more informed in terms of ideas and philosophies and, and things of this nature. And so, therefore, I think we're seeing more subcultures emerge, more people that share similar uh, ideas or traits or philosophies that congregate together, whether they congregate together in IRL in real life or they congregate together like this over social media, uh, those kinds of things. But we're, we really have erased in many ways the limitations of time and space by way of the Internet. Uh, you know, there are people I know that their best friends don't live anywhere near them and they met them by way of the internet. There are some people I know their best friends. I, I even know people who have gotten into romantic relationships with someone in another country, uh, because of the internet. So in that sense, that's what I mean when I say time and space has kind of been erased. So what we're doing now is we're aligning ourselves more and more and more with, uh, ideologies and philosophies. And so it's going to be interesting, I think, to see where that goes. Where Where's humanity going to be in the next 50 years, the next 100 years? It's fascinating to project that out and to think about that. But nevertheless, the one thing that stays the same is that we are Lord or God of our own subjective universe. We're the ones that shape it. We're the ones that inform it. We're the ones that get to make choices of it if we take responsibility for it. And so this is one of the things that I really like um, about this idea that we're divine <laughs> or this idea of the subjective universe is that we it really does lend itself to a greater level of personal responsibility. And because I am the one who was and who is and who is to come, then I have to take stock of who I was because who I am today, at least to some degree, is a byproduct of who I was yesterday, right? Who I was a few years ago. Decisions that I made in 2016, decisions that I made in 2020, things like that have brought me to this place. So the Aaron who is, is a result, very much so, of the Aaron who was. But did the Aaron who was, was he, was he conscious? Was he awake? Did he know the full ramifications of those decisions and things like that. Well, of course not. None of us have a crystal ball. I don't expect us to know to be able to peer into the future and see exactly how our choices are going to shape our future self. But in the present moment, we need to have respect to our future self. So if the Aaron who is, is a product of the Aaron who was, then the Aaron who is to come, 
will be the product of the Aaron who is now. And so the choices that I'm making now will affect my future self. And so I have to make choices in the present moment with respect to my future self. And that's why it's to my benefit to understand where my philosophy is at right now, where my values are at right now, what's important to me, what gives me meaning and purpose in my life. And here's the great part. When I realize that I'm sort of the Lord of my own life, I'm the master of my own ship, I'm the God of my own subjective universe, then I get to choose a lot of that. I get to choose what things, I get to choose a lot of the meaning making and I get to choose a lot of the, uh, beliefs and systems and, and look at those and examine those and say, okay, if I take this way of thinking, if I take this mindset, how does this translate into my behaviors? How does this translate into my choices? And if I, if I uh, collect this set of behaviors and I do these set of behaviors and I make these choices, how is that going to affect the trajectory of my life? How is that going to impact the one who is to come? And do I want to stay? So for some of you, you you might be watching this, and it might be good for you to think, you know, if you stay in the pattern that you're in, your life is going to stay to some degree, barring outside influences, what it is today. So if you're unhappy today, if you are uh, not enjoying this reality that you've created for yourself today, then it might, you you know, if, if you stay going with the flow, if you stay in the pattern and you stay going with the flow, you're not going to, um, it's not going to change. Too many people are depending on the objective universe for happiness. Too many people are depending on the objective universe to bring change into their life. They want their ship to come in. They want good fortune or good luck or maybe God will change something or they're depending on someone in their life. If only my spouse would change, if only my uh, kids would change, if only my boss would change, if only my coworkers would change, if only the government would change. And when you live like that, it becomes extremely easy to scapegoat uh, other people and other groups in your life. So if I'm merely the byproduct, and and a lot of people are, a lot of people are just the byproduct of their circumstances. It's the byproduct of the culture and the family and the ideology and the values and the philosophies that were given to them by those that had authority over them that shaped them when they were younger. And they just kind of stay in that groove. They stay in that lane. They stay in that pattern and live their entire lives like that. But they're unhappy. Uh, they're some of them miserable. Uh, but yet hopeful that something's going to change. The right people are going to get into office. Um, my spouse is going to change. My boss is going to change. I'm going to win the Powerball. Whatever the case may be. But when I, when I surrender all of that control, when I surrender all of that power, when I dethrone myself, when I dethrone myself from the throne of my own life and 
I then become shaped by others. Like, well, let's just like, like, I know this is, this is cutting against even the, the, the former Christian side of me. Like, this would be so cringy. Like, I've often told people, if the me 10 years ago could have seen the me now, I probably would have killed myself. <laughs> Not because I'm unhappy, but because I would hear the things coming out of my own mouth, like, Staying on the throne, not abdicating the throne of your own life. Now, this is a this is a big thing in some Christian circles. I'm going to lay down my crown. I'm going to abdicate the throne of my own life so that Jesus can be enthroned in my heart, or Jesus can be enthroned in my life. But is it really Jesus? Is it really Jesus, or is it just the culture around you? In other words, if if you're not in the on the throne of your own life, then who or who or what is? We say, well, Jesus is. Well, which Jesus? We're back to which Jesus? The Jesus of David Wilkerson or the Jesus of uh, the Methodist Church or the Jesus of the Baptist Church or the Jesus of Kenneth Copeland or the Jesus of the new progressive Christians? Uh, at the end of the day, which, however you answer that question, it's not the universal Christ that's ruling inside of you. It's your culture. It's whoever's telling you what to think. You say, well, it's the Bible. Okay, now you're letting dead people tell you what to think. Or then you have the problem of interpretation. And so whose interpretation do you buy into? And even among the Bible, there are places, I know people don't like theirs, but there are places that the Bible contradicts itself. So at the end of the day, you can't get around it. It's not really uh, the mystical Christ, the universal Christ, the Jesus who is Lord, let's just say, who's on the throne. It's you're letting other people. It's your pastor. It's your family. It's your culture. It's the system. It's the it's the denomination. Whatever it is, that's who's making those decisions. That's who's telling you how to think and what to do and how to vote and how to live and stuff like that uh, over really personal matters like what you do uh, in your marriage, what you do in your bedroom, what you do in the voting booth. Um, you know, trying to control all those different areas. And so, so many of us have just abdicated. Now, what that does then, and you'll see this play out if you pay attention in what we're seeing and what we've seen in the last few years in the uh, Christo-fascist movement that we call evangelicalism and Pentecostalism in America. It's Christo-fascist. It's totalitarian. We're going to tell you how to live. Our way is the right way. Everybody else is an enemy of God. And And then what you'll see is you'll see the scapegoating mechanism. If uh, pro-life pro-lifers did this with abortion, religious pro-lifers did this with abortion forever. Um, you know, J- Jerry Falwell coming out and saying um, 9/11 was the responsibility of uh, people that had abortions and homosexuals and uh, gays, gays and lesbians and transgenders, and uh, you know, it's all it's all their fault. It's all their fault. If they would just act, you see what I'm saying? This tragedy came, and we're going to find out who's at fault, and then we want to punish or change or eradicate. This is where the scapegoating mechanism comes in. <clears throat> in other words, when my fortunes are all outside of me, 
then when something goes bad, I have someone to blame. And when I have someone to blame, then that someone becomes the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. And more often than not, or very often, it's the person who's telling you the truth that you don't want to hear or reflecting back to you truth that you don't want to hear who often becomes the scapegoat, who often becomes the person that we become angry with and that we scapegoat for the problems and situations that are going on in our life. You changed your role in my life, and that messed things up. See, when you reevaluate your philosophy of life, when you make changes, significant changes in the way you behave and the way that you talk and the way that you think, like let's say you're just fed up with uh, the way your life has been, please understand and please realize that your life is the byproduct. Again, you are the you are the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So your is is the byproduct of your was, <laughs> and your to come is going to be the byproduct of your isness today. And so, if you make changes, if you look back at that person who was and said, "I don't like that," there are things that I thought back then, there are things that I did back then, and that I thought were going to bring me good outcomes, but then as I progress, the present me doesn't like the choices that I made, doesn't like the outcomes that I'm getting, and doesn't like the way that I'm thinking. I've got new information. I've got something. And so I make a radical change as the Lord of my own subjective universe, as the God of my own universe and world, the subjective universe I'm talking about. I'm not talking about someone else's. I'll get to that in a minute. I'm talking about my experience and the way that I choose to be in the world. And I make a change in that. It is radically going to shift. Uh, especially if it's radical change, it's radically going to shift your relationships because people are relating to the you that was and the you that is. And you play a certain role in their lives. And as human beings, we we commune together based on unmet needs, unmet wants, and unmet desires. At the end of the day, it, it, that's just the truth. We're 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 negotiating. Relationships are all about negotiating needs, wants, and desires. And so if I'm playing a certain role in people's lives that they want or they need or that they desire, and I suddenly change that, I suddenly change that, then that's going to shake up my relationships because now they have to learn to relate to a new version of me. And if I played a significant role in their life and I start uh Taking away, this is where codependency, codependency is I don't care about myself, I don't care about my needs, my needs aren't important, I'm just here to meet everybody else's needs. And so we go around trying to keep our need for relationship, our need for connection intact because the people in our lives are only there because we're codependent. We're enablers to them. We're doing for them things that they should be responsible to do for themselves. And so they keep us in their lives. And we keep doing those things because we want that connection. And we realize intuitively or we know consciously, if I stop doing these things for this person, this person isn't going to want to relate to me anymore. If I and I knew this when I when I came when I came out of the closet spiritually. You know, if if I come out that I where I'm at philosophically, even if I'm just asking questions, I did not expect to get the uh, the shepherds going looking for the, the lost sheep. I expected to be scapegoated. I expected to lose invitations. Why would they have me come preach? I, you know, I just knew that's what was going to happen. And I lost connection with every single pastor friend or pretty much Christian friend for all intents and purposes. And I know I still have some Christian friends out there, but I'm just saying the ones that I communed with on a regular basis, they're all gone. They're all gone, and that's fine. I knew that was going to happen. But see, that 
was a radical change in my world. That was a radical change in my life that was the result of subjective changes that I made in my own subjective universe. So, again, when I'm talking about these principles, I'm talking about over your your experience, your reality, your subjective universe. And this is where I think I really want to land in my philosophy of life. And that is that then I am a God among other gods in that sense. I'm a God among other gods. I know I'm using language that's going to turn people off. But I hope you get the point that I'm trying to make. And there's there's complete equality there. There's an I and a thou, not an I and an it, and not an I and an I. Uh, people, I know, you know, there's this idea of universal consciousness, and I, I get it, I get it, but it doesn't ever get nuanced. I mean, I understand people that are coming from that philosophy, that we're all one entity playing this game with each other, and whatever I do to you, I do to myself. Um but that's really can turn into narcissism on steroids. That, that can really be appealing to narcissistic personalities because everything's me. Uh, and what I'm saying probably sounds extremely narcissistic. I'm not saying everything's me. I'm saying everything in my subjective universe is me. But then I want to have respect to the thou that's out there. I want to have respect to the other and realize, again, that I am a god among gods. I'm a captain among captains. I'm a lord among lords. I am a... Uh, Leader among leaders. So in other words, your subjective universe is a universe all unto itself. And when I come out to relate to any other person, I'm not just relating to a person. I'm relating to a universe. I'm just playing an extra in their life, more than likely. Or, a, a you know, at best a co-star. But we're all equal. And so... If we're going to live together, then there needs to come this sense of equality. So in other words, I'm going to be so busy creating the life that I want to create that I don't have time to tell you how to create your life. That I'm not pushing something on you, and I'm certainly not getting nasty or offended if your Decisions don't match what I think your decisions need to be, with one exception. Here's where I'm at with my philosophy. Like there's a quality, like, um, uh, so no one is over me in that sense. There's people that are smarter than me. There's people that know stuff that I don't know, and I want to listen to them, and I want to learn from them, and I might even want to emulate them, but that's my choice, 100% my choice. I'm 100% responsible. I'm 100% in charge of making that decision. And so, therefore, I want to I want to honor equality for all with the nuance and the exception of no tolerance, zero tolerance for the intolerant. Zero tolerance for the intolerant. For if you allow... <laughs> intolerance to flourish in an environment of tolerance, the intolerance will take over and destroy the tolerance. In other words, 
where there is oppression, where there is oppressive ideas, where there is marginalizing of peoples, I think we have a responsibility to speak up. Now, some people have told me, well, Aaron, when you do that in judgment, you're just creating more of the same. Uh, hmm. That's a, that's a tough, that's a tough one to swallow because, uh, this stuff's been going on since the beginning of humanity. It's, it's part of our animal nature and animal species and part of this lack mentality that there isn't enough resources to go around for everybody. And so we're all fighting each other for resources or we're fighting each other over ideologies or we're scapegoating each other because we don't think and believe like I want you to think and believe. Uh, whether, I mean, I think history shows, I can't believe I'm still having this argument in my head, but I believe history shows that if you don't take measures to put those ideologies in check, if you don't speak up and stand up to those things, if you don't stand up to the bully in the playground, then the bullying is just going to happen. To do a whole thing on bullying, but bullying is a sociological problem in schools. It's, it's a social problem. It's not just, everybody thinks when there's bullying, there's just the bully and the, the, the perpetrator and the victim. But what sustains it is all the bystanders. So in that social setting on the playground, you got the bully and you got the victim, but then you have everybody else. So you have people who are fawning to the bully that don't want to get bullied. So they're ingratiating themselves to the bully. So they're bullying the victim now. They're ganging up with that person because it gives them a sense of security and a sense of power. You have other bystanders that are just standing by doing nothing. And then hopefully, really the answer is to have people who won't stand by for that, who won't participate in that system. So it's not just about... In fact, very seldom can the victim stand up to the bully. If the victim could stand up to the bully, it wouldn't be a problem. So what it what needs to happen is that other people stand up to the bully. Other people start speaking up. Now, based on certain people's cosmology in their subjective universe, the way they think that the world works in their mind is if you speak up to the bully, you're creating more bullying because you're giving it energy. And you're judging it and you're not being tolerant and you're eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're just judging the bully. And by judging the bully, you're creating more bullying when, I'm sorry, objective empirical study and analysis of bullying shows the exact opposite to be true. That when, so, so if you want to teach your kids, if you got kids, you want to teach your kids, uh, don't just teach them not to be a bully. Uh, and don't just teach them not to be a victim to the bully, but teach them to not tolerate bullying in their presence. To look around at other kids on the playground, if you see a child sitting by themselves, go engage with that child and try to bring them into the group. If you see a child being picked on, go, if you can't stand up for them in that moment, go and get a teacher or go and tell the principal and be a witness to what's going on and and to stand up to that and to put a stop to that. And that will put a stop to bullying. Well, you can extrapolate that then on a social scale, right? So if I'm standing up to a bully I'm and, and I'm telling him to stop, I'm not in that sense challenging 
the equality as much as I am elevating the equality of the victim. As much as I'm siding with the victim of that bullying and giving voice where they don't have a voice, lending my power and my strength where they don't have power and strength to put an end to how we're relating to each other. And until that happens, until that happens on the playground, until until parents start teaching their children these things, and until enough of us start standing up and stepping up and using what strength we have to elevate those that have no strength, until we can, can uh, enough of us can buy into this uh, philosophy, if you will, of equality, we're not going to have equality. And by all means, I mean, there is just no way that standing up to that or speaking up to that or speaking up for that is going to create more of that. And so if I have intolerance, as I'm examining my philosophy of life, I want to be intolerant to intolerance. We cannot have individual liberty. We cannot have individual freedom. We cannot have opportunity. And we cannot have choices as human beings living together in a society if we tolerate any form of totalitarianism or fascism. So I guess coming back to very... American ideas of freedom to choose your own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness with the limitations that within our society that prevent exploitation in the process. So in other words, you are free to choose life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness but not to exp- at, at the expense of someone else's right. And so if we could stop relating to people's objects in our lives, you know, and what I'm talking about is the waitress. I'm talking about the person checking you out um, at Walmart. I, I have to tell you the story, and then this is where I'll end. But like they're not objects. We treat them like objects, but realize they're a thou. They're they're another person. This is where I'll end. I just thought of this. I had a the worst. I got in this line at Walmart, and I got to tell you, I had the most incompetent <laughs> checkout person ever. I couldn't believe how long it took this person just to find find and scan a UPC code, and I was in a huge hurry. And there was a big line behind me. And the people behind me were getting irritated because it was taking so long because this checker was moving so slowly. And then I, and I wanted to get upset with the person that was checking me out. And then I had to remember, no, Aaron, Aaron, that's a thou that's checking you out. <laughs> no pun intended there. That's, that's trying to find the UPC code. That's a person with a life and, you know, and yeah, they're incompetent and yeah, they're going slow and yeah, they're not bagging the groceries up maybe the way they should. And I just had to, you know, I had to take responsibility and just look up and realize I was at the self checkout stand and I was, (laughs) 
Some of you will get that. Few will understand it. All right, gang. I hope this was helpful. I'm going to go. I'm going to watch some football or something. Whenever you're watching this, thank you for taking time. If you made it all the way to the end, I really appreciate you for watching the replay. Uh, look forward to looking at the comments. Hope everybody, whatever time it is for you, I hope you have a wonderful day, evening, morning, um, sleep, whatever it is.